I'm Mike Sheridan and this is The Dell. Hey, what's going on? You're very welcome along to another episode of The Delve with me, Mike Sheridan. So my guest today is Sean Spicer. Sean was the press secretary, Donald Trump's first press secretary in his four years in charge. He works for a station, a news station in the US now called Newsmax. And it's fair to say it's a fairly conservative leaning station. He's written, I think it's his third book called Radical Nation. I want to get this right. Radical Nation, the dangerous scheme to change America. So I don't know if I can do a long story short, but Sean is not a fan of the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris administration. So one thing I'll say before you watch this conversation, it's a good one, it's about a half an hour long, is that we touch on a lot of things and any single one of those things could have been an hour long discussion slash argument. So I didn't want to get into that tip for tash and that kind of aggressive style of question. It's not what I do. I try and have conversations with people. I try and you know, respectfully disagree with people. There's a fair bit of respectful disagreement, I think, throughout here, but uh, Sean was in a very unique position that very few people, few other people were in. Like he left the White House of his own accord when Anthony Scarmucci, who of course the Mooch was a was a guest on the show uh, way back last season. So it's it's an insight um, into somebody who is still pretty friendly with Donald Trump. Like the the day I'm recording this, Donald Trump is scheduled to be on Sean's show on Newsmax this evening. He also. Uh, he gives an endorsement uh, for Sean's book. He's he's quoted on the sleeve. So still still friends with still friends with the Donald. Um, so look, I enjoyed this conversation. Um, I enjoyed the political stuff anyway. It kind of comes uh, easy to me. I would have liked a lot longer with Sean. Uh, I'm sure we could have gone on and disagreed for far far longer. But it was a respectful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. You obviously really enjoy the broadcast and stuff. I love it. Uh, I mean, it's. It's kind of fun. I mean, I just really, I wrapped up um, our morning call and it's fun for me to sit back and kind of wake up in the morning, read stuff on social media, look at the news and say, you know, this is what I think would be really interesting to have a conversation about, or, you know, here would be a good guest or so actually tonight, I think we should have some really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, And does it, do you you enjoy having the co-host there? Does that take a bit of weight off you that you can kind of concentrate more on the issues? I've been doing this show for 20 months and in the past two days, I've been asked this more than I have the entire, it's a funny question. Yeah. I mean, literally yesterday, somebody said the same thing during an interview. I, I, so I didn't think, I I always wondered when they, we started talking about doing the show, whether I wanted to do it by myself or not. And um, I've, I've actually really enjoyed having someone to be able to, you know, lean on, ping off of, get ideas from. So I, I didn't know how I'd like it, but now I wouldn't go without it. And do you find as well, it kind of helps you become a little bit more engaged with what's going on, where you have to pay attention to whatever's going on in your Twitter feed or whatever's going on in the news, because you know, you're going to talk about it that evening at six. Yeah. But you know what? I've always had to do that. I mean, I, you know, from, from, if you think about it, when all the jobs that I've had, I spent six years as the spokesman and the chief strategist for the RNC, I was at the white house during campaign stuff prior to that. And, and so you, you have to do that every day. You have to wake up and know what's happening and um, for either for offense or defense purposes. Um, and so it's the difference is it's, it's the, the intensity and the stress and the creativity. So now instead of waking up and saying, okay, what am I going to get hit with? It's how can I 
you know, how can I talk about that? Or do I want to talk about that? Or what would be interesting to talk about uh, with respect to, to, to an issue? So for me, it's, it's the same level of, of being engaged, but it's a little different intensity. And, um, and, and um, I don't know if the right word is usefulness, but, but uh, what the heck that is. Um, I thought anyway. that was my cameraman. I was about to give out to him there. No, it, no it's funny. I, 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 uh, I didn't even know. I had the second phone and I was like, I didn't realize that. So, uh, you know, I, I do enjoy it. I think it's it's fun to be able to think about an issue. And like today, uh, there's some things that are going on in the news that I had a particular angle on. And I was like, when we were talking to the team this morning about the show, I was like, you know, no one else is going to be looking at it from this perspective. And I think that's one of the unique things that I bring to the show that I do anyways, that, you know, I've been um, in the white house. I've been in the military for 23 years. Um, I've worked on Capitol Hill. I've worked in campaigns. So I can sort of look at an issue in a way that a TV host, or even for a lot of my producers, they're looking at something and I go, no, 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 this is how this is going to play out. You know, we've got a government shutdown headed our way potentially this Friday, but the Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the White House. It's not going to happen. They won't let it happen on their watch, um, even if it's a short-term kick. But, you know, as I'm staring at the news that on my TV across the thing, it's it's saying, you know, avoiding a shutdown coming. And it's like that the people who, who haven't been in the arena before don't necessarily see things the way that someone who's worked there before does. It seems like it's almost, it's quite competitive because you're talking about like people coming at you and you have to, whether you're on defense or offense and stuff. Right. Is that, is that a broadcast news thing in the U S with the polarization of CNN, Newsmax, Fox news, all that stuff. Or is that more from your background dealing with political stuff in the Republican party and Democrats? Well, I, I think it's both. I mean, I think the parties use, and not just the parties in, in a structural sense, but the people within the parties, um, you know, use, use the, the media to, to weaponize issues and, and things, but the media then does it on their own as well. So, I mean, it's a mix of, of who's to blame, but I think there's, there's a little bit of both, but the media allow it to be happen. And I think social media in particular, Twitter has, has sort of been probably the largest culprit of escalating the polarization, especially of this country. And um, where, like, where would you say America or at least in the media sense, is that now? It's, it's worse than it's ever been for two reasons. One is I think there's a general distrust of the media overall um, in the United States. For, for some reasons, we've seen CNN this week, you know, where Chris Cuomo, who was one of their primetime hosts, gets suspended for lying about the involvement that he had in um, covering up for his brother, former Governor Andrew Cuomo, who had been accused of some pretty heinous things. And so people have learned to distrust the media. And then secondly, um, you have seen and, and, you know, people being able to go to news sites, Newsmax being one of them, that sort of tend to lean more to the direction that they want. So if you're a leftist in this country, you go to MSNBC or CNN or whatever. If you're lean right, you can go to you know Newsmax or Fox News. OK, I want to talk about Radical Nation as well, because. I mean, clearly from the title or the subtitle alone, you're, you're not exactly a fan. And I, I appreciate you're Republican and Democrat. And, you know, it's a binary choice in a lot of cases, but you're not exactly a fan of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Um, and I've, I've watched a bunch of interviews, a bunch of interviews, which I've watched the show and stuff as well. But it, it really, you're, the nucleus of what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
they're overspending. They're spending too much money, and there's a there's a ripple effect to that. Is that right? Yeah, but but so this is the book. It's called Radical Nation. You can get it anywhere, uh, you know, website uh, or Amazon or what have you. But the the point that I make is that, like, look, Joe Biden said during the campaign, "I'm going to be the most progressive president." And since that time, he's said two two other things as president. One, I want to transform this country, meaning the United States. And two, I want to fundamentally transform the structure and nature of our economy here in the United States. So that's not my words. Those aren't those aren't me sort of trying to you know demonize what he's saying. That's what he said. What I say and make the case for in Radical Nation is that you have to understand below what the bumper sticker of the policy. For example, we keep talking about build back better. That's his latest $1.7 trillion spending boondoggle, right? And they call it build back better. And someone goes, oh, I like building back better. That sounds really good. You need to be able to pull the, 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 the sort of peel back the onion, if you will, and look underneath it and say, what is this really about? Because, for example, today we just found out that they're talking about reclaiming 400,000 green card applications that have been made between last year and 1992 that weren't used and saying, let's reclaim them, recover them, and then give them as permanent residents to, to other immigrants. So that's not even being talked about. No one's talking about that as being part of the book. There's a payoff to local media in here. There's a payoff to trial lawyers. I think people don't necessarily understand what's below the bumper sticker. I talk about voting rights. The District of Columbia, so if people fly into our nation's capital, the District of Columbia was founded in 1790, where our founders took parts of the states of Virginia and Maryland and created a district that was just for the federal government and that wouldn't be in any state. So in 1835, we gave part of that state back to Virginia because it wasn't being used. That's actually where I live right now. I'm doing that interview in Alexandria, Virginia, which used to be part of the District of Columbia, but the government gave it back in 1835 because it wasn't being used. Well, the Democrats say that the people in the remaining part of the district should be given statehood, given because they want they claim it's about voting rights. Well, I argue in the book, why not give it back to Maryland? Because that was where it was taken from. Then they get to vote. They're part of a state. That makes total sense. It's the same thing that we did with Virginia. But Democrats want to claim it as a state. And you have to ask yourself why, because if the easy solution would be just to give it back to Maryland. It was taken from Maryland. There's precedent to give it back to Maryland the way we did Virginia in 1835. But the Democrats want to create a state for a few hundred thousand people. Why? Well, the answer is because the current makeup of the District of Columbia votes 95 to 5 for Democrats. So they want to create a new state to get two additional U.S. senators. So part of what I try to do is explain to people the, the reality and the realness of the policies that these folks are claiming. And, and, and that's why I think it's a radical nation. I think that these policies are about getting people more government, more addicted to government and maintaining and, and, and um, growing political power. Is, is that not just politics, though, Sean? Like, would the Republicans do the same thing if it was a red state, if it was a cleanly red state? You would get two Republican senators. You'd then have the majority in the Senate. No, because philosophically, Republicans want less federal, want less government. So that's the difference is that if, if anything, we would we, you know, we would push it away and say, OK, well, but but I, I would argue that Republicans, if you look at what we, we argue, it's more tax cuts, right? Give people back more money, put less government in place. So I, I and I think, you know, I, I don't think we're perfect on that. There's no question. Republicans, at least over the last few years, have, have supported a lot of efforts that have been uh, 
supportive of, of additional government, although we have been trying to get through a pandemic if you want to give some kind of excuse to it. That being said, um, you know, Republicans philosophically, at least, you know, for the most part, support smaller government, lower taxes. The, the Democrats, by their very nature, the less you're dependent on government, the less you need Democrats. They need to grow a base. They need more voters and more government to sustain themselves. And I appreciate this might be a kind of a broader issue, but is it not that the two-party system now has too many individuals in it to really be strictly a two-party system? Because you've got Republicans and you've got Republicans who are kind of centrist you know, or somewhat centrist or leaning more towards the center like a Mitt Romney. Then you've got people like who are a bit more to the right. Um, you know, I, I can name a few people there, but it's the same with the Democrats. You've got people who are maybe more like John Manchin, more towards the center. Then you've got people in Congress who are further to the left. Is, is this not all about balance? So I, I think you 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 make a good argument. Um, it's interesting because in our in the history of our country, generally the parties kind of move with the people. You think about the transformation of the Republican Party. We've become a much more populist party, a much more working people's party than we were, say, 10 years ago. So there is a realignment that does happen. Um, I mean, if you think about back in the 1990s, it happened with Bill Clinton. He had been chair of a thing called the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Committee, um, that was more of a centrist, moderate thing. And there was a fear that when Clinton became president, that the Democratic Party would become much more moderate, become a Republican light. Clearly, that hasn't happened. It's now gone um, much more the opposite way. But the parties tend to evolve with the people. I would take one issue with what you said, though, that if you think about Republicans, Mitt Romney, I think his rhetoric is one thing, but his voting record is fairly conservative, as as is a lot of these folks. It's 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 the style piece that I think is different. Um, so I think it's not a question of of voting rights, voting record as much as it is style within the Republican Party. In the Democratic Party, I would I would argue that you're probably a little bit more right in the sense that you definitely have a much more socialist progressive lean of where the party the party is today. And that a lot of these folks, whether it's Manchin or Cinema or frankly where but Joe Biden used to be, uh, which was a much more left of center position, that's eroding and moving much more to the far left. But I I mean even on the right, you could look at Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney's getting primary now this year. Yeah, but, um, but 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 here's the point though. Liz Cheney's not getting primary because of her voting record. Yeah, but that's primarily getting, they're getting voted because of the style, because of her rhetoric uh, regarding President Trump. But does that not say? Does that not say? And uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see what you think about that. Does that not say that people don't care about her voting record? They care about her rhetoric more than anything else. I think it's a good point. I mean, I I think it's a it's interesting because there's a line. Like, I think that that sometimes I think what what in the case of Liz Cheney in particular, I think it's just that she wouldn't she kept going. Right. So initially, you know, there were parties. She voted the way that she did. She voted for impeachment and and she kept her position in the House leadership. Um, and then she just didn't stop. She kept sort of going after President Trump. Um, and I think at a certain point, a lot of the folks said, you're not you're you shouldn't be in leadership if you're that outspoken about some of the folks that are leading the party. And, um, and so I, I, I think it's a fair question to ask and to discuss, but I think in it, what I believe, you know, Liz Cheney pretty much got a pass for her initial vote on impeachment. Um, it, it was sort of the continued push that really got her going. It's, I always think it was sort of reminiscent of me of, as a kid, when my mom used to be like, okay, you, you know, you made your point now stop. Right. And, and, you would keep arguing the point. And at a certain point you've gone it, you know, I, I always remember my mom being like, okay, you went too far. 
And so that was it. It wasn't that you were wrong or that you didn't have an initial point to make, but you just wouldn't stop. And I think that's, that's the problem with a lot of these folks that they may have been able to stand on their position early on, get the, and move on, but they've chosen to make it a much more contentious issue. And that's where um, it, it kept going. Well, I think, and and I know you kind of came out after January 6th, and it's, it's crazy to think we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of that now. But I think that left a really like awful mark in, in a lot of people's minds and a lot of Republicans as well. Obviously, a few voted for impeachment. So if you're not going to let something go, you know, the kind of the storming of the Capitol, you know, we all saw that footage of people breaking windows, climbing in through broken windows. I would think, personally, that that's kind of fair enough. If you're not going to let something go and you blame Donald Trump for that. Right. But that's not where it ended. And that's that's my point. And I think like I, I, I think I don't know how much you, I know you've watched the show that I do, but I've been very outspoken about January 6th. I, I worked on Capitol Hill for a long time. I thought it was disgusting um, what some individuals did. Um, I mean, as I've said all along, I don't know what world you live in where you think climbing into any building through a broken window is a normal way of entering, a, 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 you know, any any sort of building or home. So I, I just don't buy um I don't buy the fact that somehow people thought they were being invited into the Capitol because, you know, someone waved them through a smashed window. But that being said, that's not where it stopped. I mean, my point with Cheney was, I, I think that it, it's there, there's a, an element to which you're being used by the democratic party. And I think that when Nancy Pelosi, with respect, I want to get to the bottom of January 6th. I was talking about this yesterday with a member of Congress that, I, I, I want to know who those people were. It's not about January 6th to me. It's about January 5th, 4th, December 30th, December 26th. Who was planning this? What did they do to lead up? Why weren't proper precautions taken at the I mean, there's a lot of things that I would like to know to make sure it never happens again. But that's not what the focus has been. In fact, Pelosi didn't want certain people on a committee, which is unprecedented in this country. And I thought to myself, okay, if you start to dictate who can be on a committee, because you you perceive something in the future to be a problem, where does that end? I mean, why why is it just about January 6th? Can you start to say, we're not going to seat members of the minority committee because we know that they're not going to agree to our budget? They've already said that they oppose our certain, our, our, our political philosophy, so we're not going to put them on the budget committee. Where does it end? And I think that the point that I have with with, with what Cheney did was that she was complicit in allowing Nancy Pelosi to use this as a, as a political weapon, not as a real tool to actually find something that make the country better and stronger. I think some, some of what you're saying, like it kind of comes back to that rhetoric thing and the reverberation of what's when somebody in power says something and the effect that that has on people. And you could argue all day whether Donald Trump was responsible or he wasn't responsible, depending on which side of the fence you sit on. But you do have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress, who I think was sitting on one of those committees, who has said some pretty outlandish stuff too. And that's, yes. where rhetoric, and that's where rhetoric is, you know, there's people that really believe what she's saying. You know, it's essentially a conspiracy theory, some of the things that she's been saying. Well, and I'm trying to find it because I've got a, a thing in the book. I don't disagree, but here's, here's my issue. If you're going to, so I, I've been very clear. Violence is always wrong. I don't see ever a, re, a way in, in, in the United States of America where you say violence is the way to, to settle your disagreement or to, address a concern with the government. I, I've said it all along for everybody. And I've been very outspoken, as I said, about January 6th and elsewhere. Violence, destruction, vandalism, never acceptable. Okay, full stop. That's my position. 
And and part of the point that I have in the book is to say, if you think it's wrong, if you're going to call out Marjorie Taylor Greene, if you're going to call out President Trump, then call out Maxine Waters, call out Cory Booker, call out Eric Holder, call out Hillary Clinton. Every time that they told somebody to go after Trump people, every time that they told people it was acceptable to surround them, to kick them. You know, so so the problem that I continue to have is, and I think I've tried to demonstrate this in my rhetoric by saying consistently, if something is wrong, it's always wrong. It's not wrong just when one party says so, right? And so the point that I'm making is if you're going to say what Marjorie Taylor Greene or what President Trump or anyone else on the right said was wrong, fair enough. But then you've got to be willing to call out the Nancy Pelosi, I mean, the Hillary Clintons and, um, uh, and, and the, the Maxine Waters and the Eric Holders and the Cory Bookers, every time that they incite violence as well. It's not a one-way street. Is that not part of the problem? That, you know, yes. People won't, yeah, but people won't, yeah, people won't call people out within their own party. So like yes. how, many, how many Republicans are calling out people within the Republican Party and have been ostracized or primaried because it's Donald Trump? But, but I mean, look, I, I'll say it again. Yes, I think you're right. You, if something is principally wrong, it's got to be wrong. Right. So that's why what I've tried to do from a personal level is be consistent. If you if calling if if saying that violence is wrong when people are rioting last summer in the United States and cities across America, destroying public and private property, vandalizing things, kicking people, hurting people. If it's wrong, then it's wrong on January 6th. I will be consistent about this. If so, if rhetoric is distasteful and invoking violence on the left, I'll call it out. If it's on the right, I'll call it out. But I think you're right. The problem, though, and we've seen this on both sides, is that when things were happening last summer throughout America, primarily, not primarily, almost exclusively on the left, there was zero discussion from folks on the left and from the media in this country about why it was wrong and how to how to properly and, and civilly, respectfully discuss our differences. You had a Chris Cuomo, the guy that I just talked about a moment ago from CNN, go on and say, tell me where in the constitution it says that you have to peacefully protest. And then people literally holding up the first amendment of our constitution saying peaceful protest. Or you're talking, you're talking about the black lives matter protest. I am. But I mean, you could argue again, you could argue all day on the build up to that and you know, what made people snap and and go onto the streets and feel like they had no other option. Right. But, but here's my point. You can argue a lot up to everything about what caused. But my point is, is that there, I believe there are absolutes, no matter how wrong, how how much angst you feel hurting another person, destroying public or private property for the sake of it is not the way that you exact your grievances and and readdress government. So I I believe that those are absolutes. I believe that that there are our constitution, our first amendment allows for people to express themselves in a way and our voting system that if they want change, they can achieve it. But I don't think that violence is the answer. And so if you're going to say it's wrong, then say it's wrong. And that's what I've tried to do from a personal level. I, we, we, could, we could probably spend an hour talking about this alone, I would say. But I, I want to move on to 2024 briefly. I really appreciate the time, Sean. So there's been this kind of, it's almost a pattern within elements of the Republican Party, be it the running for uh, state governor, if they're thinking about running for president, and that there's either a strong embrace of Donald Trump or there's a slight embrace of Donald Trump and then back away, which is which is what some people have said is what Ron DeSantos is doing, who's seen as very much a front runner for 2024 outside of that Donald Trump realm. So who, who, I'm sorry, yeah, who sorry, Ron, Ron DeSantos in okay. Florida. So yeah, I mean, he's clearly gearing up to go for a run. Chris Christie is is clearly 
he's doing a lot of press. He's clearly uh, gearing up to go for a run. Like, is, do you think that's, do you see that's something that's got, like if Donald Trump does run, doesn't win the primary, he probably would though if he did. But if he doesn't, do you think he just goes away then? And yeah, Republicans so stop talking answer. about him. Yeah. So one, if Trump runs, he wins the primary. He it just hands down. You don't think Ron DeSantos stands a chance? It doesn't matter. No, there's no, I mean, there's nothing. It's not, look, one of the things that y'all, that people have to understand, um, not only does he have a magnificent grip um, and historic grip on the party and on the grassroots, but you also have to look at how the, the, the primary system works. So you go Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, then Super Tuesday, right? And so you have to look at those individual states and where they are. And right now, Donald Trump's approval rating in South Carolina, New Hampshire, et cetera, doesn't, doesn't just allow for somebody uh, to, to get in and, and take that away. It just It's not there. So not just as nationally, but I think in terms of the sequence for how the, the process would work, at least right now, there's nobody else. So if he runs in the primary, he's hands down the nominee. I just don't, there's not, and I, I would argue that Christie may run against him, um, but I don't see anyone else really taking him on. If he doesn't run, then I do think that Ron DeSantis is hands down the front runner. No question about it. Um, And part of that is being an incumbent governor as a chief executive that's in office where you can do things. You are in a much better place unless things turn sour. And the same thing, meaning that for the same reasons that you have a a built-in advantage as a sitting governor, a sitting chief executive, you also have an inherent danger, which is if something goes wrong and you don't handle it well, you're in that seat and and you can't explain it away why you didn't do well because you're the current person. So you have a huge advantage, but you also have a very high risk factor. Um, I, I don't know that there's even to me a close second right now in the party if DeSantis uh, were running. Now, the the caveat that I put on all of this, and I've, as I've said this going back, I've spent most of my life on the campaign side of the world, is mechanics matter. And what I mean by that is how you run your campaign how you spend your money, how you run your ads, your digital program, all that matters. Um, and we've seen this with candidates and, and on both sides. You ha- it's, a, it's, a, it's a recipe of being a good candidate with a good message and having a good operation. But you, you've got to have both. You can't just wing it and hope that everything falls in line because getting on ballots, getting people to and from the polls, keeping momentum going, all that kind of stuff takes infrastructure that a campaign supports. You mentioned a caveat there, um, and I'll, I'll have this as my final question. Again, I appreciate the time. Donald Trump still wins because the one caveat that's different than last time is that he doesn't have Twitter now. And that was a oh, big weapon for him. I, I think it's actually a help for him right now. Because if you talk to people around America right now, first of all, I think among the base, the base, the core of the Republican Party loved a lot of what he did on Twitter. I think where you saw a problem is in the general election, where you, especially in suburban areas with women who said, I don't like how he said it. I don't like how he attacked this person. So I think Twitter, in a way, has given him a gift by taking that away because they love the policies. They love the results. They love where our economy is. Um, in a lot of cases, they didn't like the tone and the style. And so if Twitter's gone, you know, it's sort of uh, it, it's it's the biggest thing that people didn't like about him. So if the one thing they didn't like is gone. And everything else is still there. It's a huge win for him. And one more thing before, before I let you go. There's two very high profile people running uh, as Democrats just announced in Texas, Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Should the Republican Party be worried? These people can raise a lot of money. They've proven they can raise a lot of money. 
they've proven they can really uh, mobilize a base. Should they be worried? Yeah, of course you should. You should always run scared. Um, in, in Texas, I would just say this. Governor Abbott's done a phenomenal job of getting people to want to, uh, to of highlighting how to run a state well. People are migrating to Texas. It's actually become more right than when Beto ran for the Senate last time. And frankly, the funny thing is you're watching Beto O'Rourke walk back a lot. Remember, when he ran for president, he had to pivot very far to the left to appeal to base caucus and primary Democratic voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, et cetera. Now that he's running in Texas, he has to pivot back to the center because at best, at best, Texas is center right, which means that Beto O'Rourke has a ton of statements out there about all this left-wing stuff that he supported when he was running for president that's well, going to come back. To well, the, well, the big one with Beto O'Rourke is guns. Like, that's a big one. But that, and then but people are assuming, because he had the AR-15 uh, comment during the primary debate, but people are assuming that people in Texas will vote, as one issue, vote on one issue or just remember that. Oh, it's issue. not just that, though. But it's, it's, it, first of all, it's not just that. That, I think, the way that you can target people these days, so you can figure out your gun people, your pro-life people, your economic people, your education people. So he's got enough statements out there that they can they can sort of bifurcate different voting segments and go after them. So I'm not worried about that. But I think Beto's in a lot more. I, I worry less about Beto because of the direction that Texas has gone since he last ran. Stacey Abrams, there's no question about it. I, I think that that sh- people in Georgia, um, she knows how to mobilize people. She knows how to raise money, as you as you pointed out. Um, and she a lot of the stuff that she had did leading up to the last election in terms of entering into consent decrees with Brad Raffensperger, who is the Secretary of State and others, to get policies moving in a direction that she could support, I think helped her tremendously. So I would be very worried about Stacey Abrams. I think she's going to bring a lot of firepower to that race. That, at the end of the day, I do think that Republicans still maintain uh, the governorship there in Georgia. But I would be, I would run scared in that race 100%. I um, appreciate the time, Sean. And I'll just say, I, I tell you what, we'll we'll do a bet, right? I bet you twenty dollars. I'll go. I'll go with Beto, and you can decide the odds. I I think Beto O'Rourke, we're having followed his career for the last three years in Texas. So I appreciate where you're talking about with the shift to the centre right, more so in Texas than anything else. But if I think he, if he gets enough young people out to vote, which I admit has been a Democratic rallying cry for for many years now, I think he could surprise some people. So will you will you take that twenty dollar bet with me? I will, absolutely. Hundred, like we'll lock it in right now. 